Well, we come to the end of our series in the Minor Prophets. If you're brand new at Grace, we've been looking at the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They're called Minor Prophets, not because they're sort of minor league or less important, but just simply because they're shorter. But they're packed with powerful messages. And today, we're looking at the only Italian prophet among them, a guy named Malachi. <laughs> some of you guys, I'm just, that's a joke. His name is what? Malachi, there's some wonderful people here whose names are Malachi. And we're gonna be looking at this guy who spoke, gave a message from God about 450 years before Jesus and John the Baptist show up on the scene. And what Malachi is gonna talk about is the prioritizing of our relationships. Like what relationships to you matter most? Let me start with a story, a confession about my own marriage. Um, some of you know that I married really, really well that my wife Mary's up here a little bit ago. She is joy-filled and, and kind and, yeah, she's, who she is and you see in public is the same person she is in private. She's an amazing friend and teammate and wife and uh, we all have our pressure points, our burdens. Uh, Mary and I have our own, uh, but Mary leans into Jesus and she's amazing. She's a treasure to me. The problem is I have not always treated her like that. Um, and just, I'll share one that was early in our marriage that, and it's not always intentional. It's, it's, I'm gonna get to our relationship with Jesus, but as an ex example of that, um, early in our marriage, we were visiting my family. I'm the sixth of nine children. My parents have 40 grandchildren. I mean, we just have, when Schaefer's get together, it's noisy and fun and there's tons of food, and there's competitive games, and it feels like you're sometimes talking over each other, and it's just, it's a great, well, one night, we're, um, we're with my family, and Mary, who loves my family, she's sort of quiet at the end of the evening, and I go, hey, babe, are you, is everything okay? And she goes, not, not really, um, but I can't quite put it into words right now. Just give me a second, you know, and I'll say, okay. You know, so a little bit later she comes to me and she goes, you know, you asked me if everything was okay. And she goes, here's what I think happens when we visit your family. She goes, I love your family. They've invited me, I'm part of your family. But when we visit your family, it feels like sometimes you become first a brother and a son and the fact that you're a husband is somewhere down the line. Boom, oh my goodness. She was like absolutely right. I was unconsciously. She goes, I, I, feel like, I feel like you get so involved with your family that I, you sort of ignore me. Wow. Well, she's still here today, so you know we, we made it through that one, right? Like we're, we're okay. But when she told me that, I thought, you know, what Mary is saying is that even though I would say she's the most important human relationship that I have. I mean, outside of my relationship with Jesus, Mary is like, she, she rocks, to, right, right? She's everything to me. And, but I have allowed my being a brother or a son or whatever to be first and her husband has come on down the line. Here's what I wonder. How often would Jesus say the same thing about my relationship with him? With you. That we'd go, oh yeah, like I'm a Christian. And maybe you're not there yet. But when you are, what that means is Christ in me, 
Jesus is first in my life. He's not a sliver of my life. He is at the center of my life and everything else emanates from there. Like he, he gives me power and joy and wisdom for all of my life. But how often could he say, Jonathan, I know this isn't your intent, but I feel like you're first like a career person and secondly or thirdly, you're my follower. Or for you, he might go, you're first like really into your hobby or you're first a spouse, or you're first a coach, or you're first this, and then somewhere down the line, you're like one of my followers. And I feel like sometimes you ignore me like you go about your life and you get so busy that I am pushed to the periphery of your life. You've drifted from me. Has that ever happened to you? It does to me. And it always has happened to God's people. And Malachi is sent to say, folks, you know what? God's love for you is immeasurable. His patience is undeniable. His faithfulness, unmistakable. He loves you. He never changes, Malachi says. But you, sometimes you begin to drift and Malachi wants to call us back. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And if you have your phone, you can look at the Bible app there instead. And we're going to see what are the ways that these people drifted from God and how do they come back? What does God call from them? And, uh, and what can we do as well? Let me just welcome those of you who are watching online, uh, some of you watching uh, in the moment, some of you watching days, weeks later, really glad to have you with us. And, uh, and Jesus is with you right where you are. And he's speaking to you and he's speaking to us. And so we wanna just listen. What does he say through Malachi for us today? So here's what Malachi does. He uses a series of question and answers to appeal to the people to turn away from their sin and to turn back to God. And, uh, and here's what he wants them to know. He says, I want you to let Jesus be the number one priority in your life. And if you do, there's going to be blessing. It doesn't mean life's gonna go perfect, but you're gonna know the presence and the power of God. And if you keep him on the edge of your life, I just wanna warn you, it, it, it ain't gonna go well. So Malachi, again, final messenger to the Israelites, before John the Baptist and Jesus show up on the scene. So there's a 400 period of silence after Malachi. Last book of the, of the Old Testament, Malachi, 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist and Jesus show up on the scene. Uh, before we dig into the book, let's watch a one minute overview of this book from the Bible Project. Here it is. The book of the prophet Malachi. He lived about 100 years after the Israelites had returned from their Babylonian exile, and his message was directed to the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt a while ago, and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. 
The book's designed as a series of disputes, and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. All right, so we're going to look at those six times, and if you're wondering, like, how do I know those six? If you go to our bulletin on our homepage and just click bulletin at the end of our bulletin or the message notes from today, those of you uh, here uh, on site, uh, you can, you pick some uh, message notes maybe on the tables right outside the doors, or if you miss those next week, they're always uh, available there at the table. By the way, if you're wondering, like, John, you didn't show us the whole Bible Project video, like, I only saw one minute. Where do I get those? If you just go online and just do Bible Project and whatever book, you can just watch the whole video if you want, and it gives a description of the entire book. But here's what Malachi does. He has these six areas where he says, uh, uses this question and answer, and, and God sort of says, you say this, I'm responding like this, and then the people go, and, and God's intent in every one of these is to say, I want you to be first a follower. I want my relationship with you to be right at the center. Wherever you've drifted, I wanna bring you back. I wanna bring you back here. I wanna bring you back. I want every area of life for, to be at the center of your life. And that's God's heart for every one of us. Now, what he does here, these six areas, there might be an area too where you go, yep, that's for me. Other ones, you might go, I'm not, that's not really a problem in my life, but it's not meant to be an exhaustive list, it's suggestive. And it might remind you that, you know, I haven't drifted from God in this area of my life, but I think I have over here. So let's take a look, see what Malachi says. We'll do some inventory and, uh, and see where the Lord wants to sort of challenge us to come back and let him have the rightful place in our lives. The book starts off with what to me is one of the most startling questions in the Bible. Chapter one, verse one, here's what, um, here's what he says. It says a prophecy or an oracle, uh, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. He says, I just wanna establish this. I love you. He's telling you that today. He's telling you that. I love you. But you ask, how have you loved us? Warning number one, they doubted God's love. They, they questioned, well, God, look at what's happened in my life. Like, how, how can you say you love us? I mean, if you truly love me, I wouldn't be going through this. And, and have you been there? Probably most of us have asked those kind of questions. I, I think it's sometimes, even if you go, I don't, I don't know if I really said it. It's easier to sometimes see in other people. For the people of Israel, um, we almost might be surprised how can they ask that question. When you think of God's people, when they go, God, how have you loved us? And God's going, how I loved you. I rescued you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. I gave you your own homeland. You've had my constant presence. I provided a way for you, a pathway to be forgiven when you mess up. I've upheld you with my promises. I've shown you my power in so many different ways in your life. How have I loved you? You know where the people went wrong, though? When God got pushed to the outer extremities of their life, they began to do life their own way. They're like, you know what? I know God says this, but I'm gonna do this instead. And God says, you know, when you do that, you're, you're gonna face the consequences at some point, right? And then they go, they, they face the consequences, and they're like, God, how can you say you love me if this? God's going, you, you're, you're living life your own way. I think we do the same thing. Tell me if you've seen this happen. One example, a person um, gets in a relationship that they know dishonors God. Maybe it's with someone who doesn't share your faith. It might be the kind of relationship where you know you're going beyond the boundaries for what God has that relationship. Or 
and, but you're like, but I really love this person and I just feel so right and I haven't, and so you just plow ahead. Despite what you know, God would be telling you this is not best for you. And then at some point, the relationship crashes and your heart is crushed and you feel the devastation. You go, God, how can you say you love me? And God's going, that was never my desire for you. Or maybe we make a purchase that is, uh, puts me in a financial total stress and it wasn't God's heart for me and I feel the prayer, God, how can you love me? I'm going through, God's going, I, I, that was not in my heart for you. That was not. And that was the case for these people anyhow that, that God says, I, I've always loved you. They're like, how do, how do you love us? And part of it is that these people had just wandered away from God and then walking outside of his plan, they faced the repercussions of that and then they questioned God, how can you say you love me? Sometimes that's why we question God. There's something that we would say, you know, I, I know I've gone out of bounds. I did something that was completely against God's will and now I'm facing the consequences. But other times you might just go, John, I've suffered, man. I lost someone very dear to me. How can God say he loves, loves me if I've been through this? You know what we would add today? I, I don't even always know how to answer that question with people, but what I can say is this. Look to Jesus. When we consider the fact, this is where we're different from the people that, to whom Malachi spoke. We live on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection where the father would tell us, he'd say, you know, I gave my, my son for you. My son went to the cross and died a cruel death to pay the penalty for your sins, like your regrets, so you could be free and forgiven. Do you trust that I love you? If I'm willing to give my only son for you, will you trust that I love you even when it doesn't make sense? Several months ago, I was praying with Pastor Joel, Pastor Joel and Ellen, who are now in Abidjan, and uh, maybe watching today, we love you guys. Uh, Pastor Joel said something, I remember, I just, I was like, I gotta write this down. Maybe you're gonna write it down as well, but he said this, before the cross, any doubt that God is for us is brought to its knees. Before the cross, when I look at the cross and what Jesus has done, any doubt that God is for us is brought to its knees. He loves you. Even if we sometimes question, can we look to the cross and say, God, I'm never gonna doubt your love for me. I may question why this is happening. I may wonder about, but God, I believe that you love me. He tells the people, if you're questioning if I love you, I'm calling you back. Trust that I love you. Next evidence of spiritual drift for these folks was that they were dishonoring God by going through the motions of worship without their hearts like it was the leftovers. If you look in chapter one, verse six, end of verse six, he says, you people ask, how have we shown contempt for your name and our worship? 
And he says, you place defiled food on my altar. Back in that day, they would make sacrifices. This is before Jesus came. Sacrifices of the Old Testament were then wiped out. But in that day, they would bring an animal or they would bring food or something like that. And he goes, you're bringing defiled stuff. It was like they brought like, hey, honey, we need to take some milk. Let's take that milk that's like past the expiration date, you know? Or that cheese that's all moldy, which we would never eat anyhow. Let's take, and Jesus, the Father's going, how can you offer me something that is spoiled, defiled? He says in verse eight, you wouldn't even do that with your governor. How much greater is the Lord your God? So they were doing the right things. They were having their sacrifices, but they're doing it half-heartedly gathering for worship, but their hearts weren't in it. He says in verse 10, he says, it would be better if you just shut the doors of the temple and closed up shop. Worship for them had become a habit. They were going through the motions, but they, they, they weren't expressing the love of their hearts to God. You go, John, how to translate that for today? Because we don't bring like food for the, although if you want to bring like ice cream sometime, I would not turn it down if it's not spoiled. Um, but we don't bring like food that's defiled or whatever. You go, what does that look like for today? When I come to worship and I just sort of go through the motions and I look around and I'm like, it's pretty hot in here. The air conditioning doesn't work. And look at Jonathan's shirt. That's so ridiculous, you know, when he's wearing that green shirt today or whatever. And, and God's going, who are you here for? Are you, are you here to express your love for me? To just tell me how grateful you are that I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross, that heaven awaits, your lives are filled with purpose, that I give you promises of my constant presence. And I just respond to God and go, God, I love you. I surrender my life to you. God, here I am. Lord Jesus, thank you for all you've done. And we just let our hearts ring out and worship, you know, and, and he says, when you come to worship, don't come with just sort of like, you know, you're just like, I don't, I don't really know how we're doing this or whatever. He says, no, come with the heart that just wants to express your love to God. So they doubted God's love for them. They came to worship with sort of half-heartedness. There's another warning here in chapter two, verse 13. I'll read the verses and we'll do the warning. He says, here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with your tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Okay, so they're going, we're trying to worship, but Lord, you're not accepting it. Why? Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Just pause right there, warning number three. They were violating God's covenants by breaking their vows with one another, specifically in marriage. It's for both husbands and wives, but they're like, why isn't God blessing us? What's going wrong? God says, you want another real issue here? You're not been keeping your promises to your spouse. And I can't bless you when you do that. Casual divorce for them had become normal. And God says, this is the chapter. If you're wondering, where's that verse in the Bible that says, I hate divorce? This is it right here. He's a faithful God. His love is unchanging. He keeps his promises. And he wants you and me to reflect that as well. Friends, listen to this. Those of you who are married, 
after my commitment to Jesus, the greatest promise I've made in the whole world is to my wife. If you're married, the greatest commitment you've made in the world after your commitment to Jesus is your commitment, your promise to your husband, your wife. Those two promises, my promise to Jesus and my promise to Mary, are inextricably linked. I can't say, well, Lord, I love you. Isn't that really into my, you know, Mary, you know, or, or your spouse? We hear people say today, like, you know, God wants me to be happy and fulfilled. I'm no longer happy in my marriage. Therefore, I can leave this marriage to find happiness somewhere else. Friends, that's a lie from hell. I'll just tell you. God's does not say that number one is true, that his heart for you is to be happy. I may end up having a stroke. My wife might end up with dementia. Some of you are in that right now. And you know that your promise to your spouse, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live is not always easy. But God says, I want you to keep that promise. That promise is part of your relationship to me. Don't treat it lightly. Someone might go, Jonathan, is there ever a reason for divorce? Because I've been divorced. Yeah, there's reasons for divorce. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, and Matthew chapter 19, he says, when there's been egregious sexual sin, um, the divorce is permitted. First Corinthians seven, if there's been an abandonment, abandonment of vows, there's been significant abuse or something like that, I wish we'd go into that more. Uh, he says divorce is permitted. You might go, that wasn't one of the reasons I'm divorced, like can God forgive me? Absolutely God can forgive you. Divorce is not, and you might be the victim of a divorce. We don't have an entire mess time to go through this as an entire message, but the, the point is just this. Yes, sometimes divorce will happen because we live in a broken world. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. But he's saying to us, don't you be the one to break your promise to your spouse. As far as it depends on you, do your part. That's, that's part of it. He goes, don't drift from me by treating that promise as something that is taken lightly. Verse 16 of chapter two, he says, so guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife, your husband. Warning number four, just briefly on this one, uh, he says, you're accusing God of being unfair, that you're under-blessed as followers, and that those who don't follow God are under-judged. Uh, here's what he, how he says it in verse 17. He says, you have wearied God. They actually made him tired by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he's pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? Um, they had forgotten their history. Here's what they're saying. They're going, God, it doesn't seem fair. People who don't follow you are making money and doing well, and then I'm trying to follow you, and life isn't going so well for me, and what's wrong? You know what God essentially says? He says, step back and see the bigger picture. Think back to the times that I've shown my justice and I've disciplined people who have not followed me or trusted me, who have, who have been uh, unjust, who have treated people as as without dignity, et cetera. And if you don't have seen it in the past, if you haven't seen the past, he goes, look ahead to my promises. The story has not yet been complete. If we turn over to chapter four here, chapter four, verse, uh, 
let me just, yeah, if you guys with the slide, we'll go to chapter four, verse one. He says, the day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. He's going, hey, there's gonna come a day that people who have dishonored me, dishonor those around them. He goes, they're, they're gonna face the music. And for those who honor the Lord, chapter four, verse two, he says, but for those of you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go free, leaping with joy like people getting through the gates, says Cedar Point, for the very first time. Because we don't have calves out to the pasture, at least I don't in my family. But he's saying, you're gonna have the time of your life. You hear what he's saying? He's going, if you think that it's not fair right now, like God, look what I'm going through. He goes, remember this, the story's not over. There's more chapters still to be written and God will reward those who are faithful to him. Warning number five, they were cheating God by not giving generously. This area sort of catches them by surprise. Chapter three, verse eight, here's what he says. He says, you've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. He's talking about their generosity. You know what becomes clear in these verses is that they're not only robbing God, that they're hurting themselves. Listen to what he promises them in verse 10, chapter three. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Now I want you to picture this. That God, there's sort of like heaven and then there's these windows and then there's us and this is essentially what God is saying. He's going, do you trust me enough to just, God's not bankrupt. He doesn't need my money but when I give to God to make a difference for others, God goes, you know what I'm gonna do? When you trust me like that and I see your faith on display in that way, I'm gonna open up the windows of heaven. I'm gonna pour out such a blessing. He goes, you're not gonna have enough to be able to contain it. He says, try it. Test me in this. You know what I think? Jesus says something similar. Let's just read this other verse from Luke chapter six. Jesus says, given you will receive, your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over, poured out into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. What he's saying is this, that my generosity is an indicator of my love for God. And when I fail to be generous, God's saying that it's an indicator of not loving me a whole lot. Oh, I, you can't say that, I, I love God. I, he's going, and he's not talking about amount. He's going, are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice in such a way that there's a corollary here, that, that generosity, Jesus says, where your treasures, there your heart will be also, Matthew chapter six. It's like Mary and my kids. <laughs> if they ask me for something, my son texted me from university the other day. I, I just, I love to say yes, right? Yes, yes. If it's a good gift, yes, I love to give. And if you're watching this today, Andrew, ask me again, right? Test me in this, right? That great love is marked by great generosity. But these people were failing to be generous and God goes, you're robbing me. You're not trusting me. Test me. See if I'll meet you in your generosity. Have you drifted all on that one? We're gonna see what God says to us in just a second here about coming back, but warning number six, and then we'll wrap up. They complain about serving God, wondering, is it, is it even worth the time? Chapter three, verse 13. They're like, it, it sort of seems pointless to do things for God. 
They wondered, they're like, God, we're trying to serve you and we don't, nobody really notices, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, you, and they were doing it for their own benefit. And God says, will you serve me because you love me? Some of you today have been so faithful in serving and you're making an impact with, with your life. But sometimes people don't always take notice. They don't say thanks. Maybe they even complain about the way you're doing it. You know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six? He says, whatever you do in secret for God, that God is going to reward you. You read about it. He says, if you pray in secret, if you give in secret, if you fast in secret, if you, and we could say if you serve in secret behind the scenes, that God is going to reward you. That's his promise. It's not pointless, but the people are going, yeah, it doesn't really make a difference. And they, here's the big question we wanna end with. What's the answer to spiritual drift? If in one of these areas we question, does God really love me? I don't think he's very fair. I don't know what the point of serving him. You know, I, I'm not really happy in my marriage or whatever it might be. What do we do if we go, yeah, one of the more of those might be true for me. There is great news here in Malachi. It's the, it's the message of the Bible that God is full of grace. And listen to what he says in chapter three, verse seven. It's really the answer to you, for you and for me if we've drifted. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord God Almighty. Return. What does that mean? Whatever you know the Lord wants you to do, do it. If you're like, I'm not keeping my promise there, Say, God, I've not, I, I want to keep my promise there. God, I want, I want to serve you. I want to give back to you. Invite him to be first in your life once again. Make your relationship with him your number one priority. Walk with others who are doing the same or following Jesus. Get in a, an adult class that begins on September 12th or one of the small groups. If you're middle school or high school, get in one of the youth groups, Grace Kids, whatever it might be, but say, God, I want to run with other people. I want... If there's any area of my life where you've been pushed to the periphery, God, I want to come back to you. You're going to be like that prodigal son where you start to go, life isn't working well the way I'm doing it on my own. I'd be better to be back with the Father and for him to be number one in my life. Let me come back to my conversation with Mary. Remember the conversation where she sort of did some surgery with a scalpel in my heart? She was absolutely right when she said, Jonathan, it feels like I, I am like, I'm not your number one priority. And she wasn't trying to be like, I need to be like, you know, the, the queen of your life or something. She was just like, it feels like I'm sometimes ignored. You're first a son and a brother and second or third year. So, and I, so I said, wow, what do I do? Like, you've, you're right. And she said, well, for starts, like, act like you wanna be with me. <laughs> so that, that's, that's a good one. Um, and she said, just invite me. You're going to play ping pong with your, one of your brothers? Just go, hey, I'm going to play ping pong. You want to come down with me? Um, grab my hand. Include me. If you're going out to the store, invite me to go with you. Just invite me into every part of the day. And, and allow me to really sense that, yeah, that I'm loved by you. You know, I sometimes think that's exactly what Jesus is saying to me as well, and to you. Invite me into every aspect of your day. Include me. Talk with me about what's going on in your life. Bring me into the center of your life and to every aspect of your day. 
Friends, that's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Say yes to him. Invite him in. Surrender every area to him. And say, Lord, I don't want you to just be a sliver of my life. I want you to be the center of my life. He's calling you back. Return to him. You won't regret it. Let's pray and invite him to make it the case in our lives. Jesus, that's what we want. We want you to have first place in every area of life. I wonder if you just tell him that. Maybe there's an area where you go right now like, Lord, I know that I'm not honoring you right here. I haven't really invited you into my work life or this certain part of my life. And God, I, wa- I, wanna, I want you to be included. Would you just tell him that right now? Just respond to whatever the spirit of God is prompting in your heart. And Lord, thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. When we get it wrong, when we come back to you, you don't hold it over our head, you don't beat us up. You just tell us, I've always loved you and that's unbreakable. And yes, I forgive you. So thank you for your grace today, Lord. Thank you that as we return to you, as we invite you to be number one, in our lives, Lord, that you can empower us by your Holy Spirit to make that so. So Lord, for all of us, that's what we want, that you would not be replaced by any idols, even the good things that can push you out of the center place in our lives. I want you to be number one, Jesus. I wanna love you with all my heart. Help me in that journey, I pray. That's what you deserve. In your name I ask this, amen.